all of you dads out there, happy Father's Day. Especially to one of the newest dads, Pastor Tim. This may be the only day of the year you get to enjoy, Tim. <laughs> Father, we just uh, thank you for being our Father. And we thank you for your love. We thank you for the provision that you provide for us. We thank you, Lord, for watching over us. We thank you for your Son, Jesus the living word. And we thank you for your written word that gives us life. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit. I pray now that there would be fresh wind and fresh fire as we begin this study on the prophet Elijah. And I pray that each of us in our own ways will be encouraged and challenged, and that, Lord, we will be able to step out in greater faith because your Spirit is speaking in to our hearts, deep within us. Let our response back be from that same place. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Most of us can remember where we were on September 11, 2003, when the World Trade Center was attacked and the Pentagon was attacked and one of the four jets that had been hijacked was taken back by the passengers and crashed in an empty field in Pennsylvania. On a local radio station that day in Norfolk, Virginia, Robert Matthews called in to tell his story. That morning, he was driving his pregnant wife to the airport. While they were in the car, they prayed for her safety. She was going to California, L.A., to see her sister. Shortly after they said amen, they heard a pop. The tire exploded. Robert was able to pull the car over. He changed the tire as quickly as he could. But by the time they got to the airport, it was too late. She had missed her flight. And they returned home. It was after they got home that Robert got a call from his father, who was a retired New York City firefighter. His first question to his son, Robert, is, do you know the flight number your wife was on? Robert explained that she had missed the flight because of a flat tire. And his father said, that plane flew into one of the towers. God had provided protection for Robert's wife and for Robert's unborn baby. 
God's provision is our focus this morning. We're continuing the theme of being sent as empowered Christians to transform the world. And we're taking an interlude from our study through Acts to look at the Old Testament prophet Elijah and how God was moving his people and sending them out to transform the world. We hope that as we do this study, you will be able to see and relate and understand some of the nuances of that part of our mission. That you will be challenged to be sent out of this place as part of the gathered church to make a difference in your local communities, wherever God has you, but certainly for us together to find ways to make a difference and then to make a difference even to the farthest reaches of the world. Like the Czech Republic. Welcome back. The big idea today is this. Whatever God calls us to, God provides for. Whatever God calls us to, God provides for. This includes delivering us through whatever challenges and trials we may face. He will preserve us just as he uh, preserved Robert Matthews' wife and unborn child. To be clear, I'm not presenting a big idea that is novel or that will tickle your thought processes. I am presenting something that is basic, but fundamentally important and something that we should never, ever lose sight of. Whatever God calls us to, God provides for. We need to remember this. Because God is the one who is providing the means and the tools and the opportunities for us to serve him, to make a difference, to live out our mission, both as individuals and as a church together. I invite you now to open up your Bibles to the Old Testament book of First Kings. Chapter 17 will be our focus this morning. And in chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, we see the first example of calling, obedience, and provision. Now this is the first time that we are introduced to the prophet Elijah. It's as though he comes out of nowhere. Oftentimes, when a prophet is introduced, we know something about their lineage, and we know something about their heritage, and something about their religious pedigree. In Elijah's case, much of this is void. Let's read 1 Kings 17.1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, 
there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Chapter 17 not only introduces us to Elijah, but tells us a little something about Elijah and his calling. If I could uh, put the map up there, you're going to see that green circle in the arrow. That is where Tishbe is located. It is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. The tribes that settled to the eastern side of the Jordan River, especially near that area, were Gad and up a little higher, closer to the Sea of Galilee, was the half-tribe of Manasseh. It is most likely that Elijah was from the tribe of Gad. So we are introduced to him here. We will be introduced to two other very important characters in this chapter, a widow woman from Zarephath and her son. Two other characters matter to us, although they are not introduced here for the first time. They are introduced at the end of chapter 16. They are antagonistic characters. They are King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. By this time, the promised land is divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And Ahab is the king over Israel, the northern kingdom. It is to him that Elijah is called to be a prophet and to the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. Samaria, where the red arrow is in circle, That was the capital of the northern kingdom. It is there that Elijah goes to speak a word of judgment to Ahab. What we know about Ahab and Jezebel, as I said, comes from the end of chapter 16. We are introduced to Jezebel, who is called a princess of the Sidonians. Her father was the king of Sidon. Together, Ahab and Jezebel have set up altars to the fertility god, Baal, and the mother of this god, Asherah. We read this then in 1 Kings 16.33. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the other kings of Israel who were before him. It is to him and to the nation of Israel that the word of judgment comes. It will be a word of drought, and the drought will last three and a half years. It will turn the promised land of milk and honey into a barren wasteland. God had warned his people through Moses when they ratified the covenant with God Who did that? God had warned the people through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy when he ratified the covenant with the people of God that they 
must obey these commands. And if they do not, the land of milk and honey, which God had provided for them, which gave them bountiful food and met their needs because God promised he would make it rain. He said, if they forsake him, he will cause the rain to stop. And the bounty of food will cease. And the land will become barren. God goes on to say that should they continue and not heed this warning, God will take them out of the promised land to a place far away in exile. And only when they return to him will he return them to the promised land. Well, it is after Elijah declares this word of the Lord in judgment to Ahab that God speaks to Elijah and tells him that he should go out into the wilderness. I want us to read now verses 3 through 7. Depart from me, depart from here and return eastward, and hide yourself by the book Kari, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the book, brook, and I will have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, and that was east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evenings, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. One of the things that we already begin to see in these first seven verses is that word in your Bible. Do you look down in it? Do you see the word Lord? It's in all caps. You know why it's in all caps? Because it refers to a very specific Hebrew word for the Lord. Whenever you see caps in the word Lord in the Old Testament, the word that is being used there is Yahweh. It is the formal name of God. It is used in chapter 17, 21 times. It is used more than any other name for God in the Old Testament by at least three times. It is used 628 times. And every time we read the name of the Lord, whether it is Yahweh or whether it is something else, it describes something about God's character that is fundamental to what is happening because the name is descriptive of the character of God. Elijah has received the word of the Lord after he pronounces a drought. 
And he immediately responds with obedience. He travels far away into the wilderness, past where he is from, to the end of the brook of Kareth. And there, God provides for him. Where is that? You see the blue arrow? That's where Kareth is. So he travels eastward from the red circle, Samaria, all the way to Kareth. It is probably the beginning point of that brook. God has provided. God, I mean Yahweh, has provided for Elijah during this drought. He has provided protection for Elijah from Ahab and Jezebel during this drought. He has sent him into the wilderness. And what Elijah does in response reflects his deep trust of God. He simply obeys. And God provides for all that Elijah needs, both naturally and supernaturally. Naturally through the brook, but supernaturally through the ravens. I don't know if you've ever seen animals pecking at um, their food or or dead food, but they're very territorial. They don't share their food with each other, unless it's a mama bird with her baby birds, right? If you've ever seen them uh, by roadkill, you'll know that uh, they kind of stay away from each other because they'll chase each other away, and yet God moves the ravens to share their food with Elijah, and he is provided for throughout this time. This is the first example of calling and of obedience and of provision. Now, while it doesn't tell us that Elijah is called by God to bring a word of judgment to Ahab, we're going to see that this pattern actually continues, and it is most likely that that's exactly what God did when Elijah came to declare the word of the Lord in judgment. Now, in verses 8 through 16, we see the second example of calling and obedience and provision. Elijah stays there until the brook is dried up and there is no more water for him to drink. Once again, God speaks to Elijah. He provides for Elijah. And once again, Elijah is obedient. He may not understand all that God is requiring of him, all that God is leading him to, all that he is to do for God. But he trusts. And he steps forth in trust of God and acts obedience. And it is this trust and obedience which is why God provides. Let's read now verses 8 through 10a. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow to feed you there. So he rose and went to Zarephath. Elijah 
goes to where the Sidonians lived. In the map, we have that picture of the map. You can see up where the yellow arrow is that he heads from where the blue circle is all the way up to the yellow area. He leaves the promised land. He has gone out beyond it. Sidon is the city just directly north of that. It is the area from which Jezebel comes. Her father was king of Sidon. And there in Sidon and in that whole region, they worship the fertility god Baal. So Elijah, in obedience to the Lord, leaves the wilderness and he goes to where Baal is God. And there, in the midst of God's adversary and Elijah's adversary, Yahweh will provide for Elijah supernaturally through the widow that he has ordained to serve and help Elijah. God arranges a meeting for them at the gate. Let's read now verses 10 through 16. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the city, the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, Make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that was spoken by Elijah. The thing that we need to understand about what is happening is that within the Middle East, hospitality is one of the most important shared values of the people. So when Elijah meets her at the gate, He asks her for a cup of water. And though she is doing something, she knows that it is expected of her to be hospitable. So she goes to draw some water for Elijah and bring it back to him. Why is hospitality so important? Well, consider that they live in a very arid land. In many ways, travelers are at risk of dehydration and starvation. There's not much there. And so they know that someday they too 
may be in a setting like that. Hospitality they may require of others. And this is why hospitality is such an important point in the Middle East. It's, it's sort of like sailors. Sailors on the ocean, there's just a basic rule of thumb. If a ship goes down and there are sailors in the sea, no matter what the ships are doing, they come to rescue those who are in the sea. Why? Because someday they too may be in that situation. So Elijah asked the woman for water. She goes to get it for him. But while she's doing that, Elijah asks her to bring him a morsel of bread. Now the woman responds to Elijah. And he, she says to him that she is destitute. She is protesting. She no longer wants to extend any more hospitality. She is about to eat her final meal with her son, and they will die, die of starvation. Elijah, nevertheless, asks her to do this. She swears, notice, not by her God, but by Elijah's God, Yahweh. That's the word. She is not a believer. The prophet promises that Yahweh will provide for her and her son if she will provide the bread for the prophet. She obeys. We don't know why. We don't know if it made sense to her. We don't understand it all. Perhaps it's simply that God had prepared her heart to respond in obedience. Certainly God is able to do that for all of us. The point is, she trusts and steps out in that trust and obeys. Even though she is not a child of God. And the Lord provides for Elijah and for the widow and for her son. Just as God had provided water and manna for the Israelites in the de desert supernaturally, so now God provides flour and oil supernaturally. Just as God had provided water and food in the wilderness for Elijah, so now God provides flour and oil supernaturally. They will have enough for each day. The pattern, calling, obedience, provision. Well, this takes us now to the third example that we read about in 1 Kings 17 through 24. It is here that the unexpected happens, but even in tragedy, the pattern is followed, calling, obedience, and provision. All is going well. Well for the widow and well for her son. But tragedy strikes suddenly and the son dies. Look at what it says in verses 17 and 18. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, 
What have you against me, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance, to cause the death of my son? The widow is devastated by her son's death. She assumes that the prophet is connected to this reversal of fortunes. She wonders if it was some kind of elaborate plan to reveal her sin to her and to punish her all the more. After all, she was prepared to die. And that would be it, and she would die with her son. Then everything goes extremely well. She, she has hope once again. And she and the son are doing great. But now her son has died and she is alone and her grief is much deeper than it would have been had not Elijah just allowed her to die. She assumes it is recompense for her sin. But just as Elijah had instructed the widow to give him bread, and she obeyed, Elijah now instructs the woman to give him her son. And she obeys. Elijah takes the boy up to his room and he prays. Let's read the rest of this from verses 99. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and he carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon this widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again. And he was revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord, Yahweh, in your mouth is true. We see the pattern of calling and obedience and provision once again. Elijah prays and God hears his prayer. Oh, God hears his prayer because Elijah is obedient. Elijah trusts in God. And this is why the boy lives. Now, why can I say that? It doesn't say that in this text. I can say it because when we read in the New Testament, James, who writes an epistle, tells us this is so. He is talking to the, the believers, and he says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. He says the prayer of a righteous person has great power and is working. And then he gives the example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain him for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth 
bore its fruit. God listened to the prayers of Elijah because he was a righteous man. His prayers were effective because he trusted God and he obeyed God. We are not told why the widow listened to Elijah, why she obeyed and gave Elijah the boy's body. I think it's reasonable for us to assume that in some way the miraculous things that she saw taking place in the flour and the oil was a witness that helped her to trust the prophet and to trust his God, Yahweh. As we experience supernatural provision in our lives, and we do, these become for us an opportunity to grow in our trust and in our faith. They should inspire greater trust and greater faith. I remember talking with um, some pastors that I meet with. One of them's my age, so that makes him decrepit. Hey, I'm not ancient yet. Some of you guys are, so don't laugh at me. Um, and a couple of the guys, one's in their early 50s, the other's in his mid-50s, and they're talking about, well, these are probably our last pastorates. We probably won't serve any more churches. And I'm sitting there listening to them go on and on about how churches don't want some old man in the pulpit. They're looking for young eagles who fly high. And, um, and then as we went around the circle, it finally got to me. And I just chuckled and said, you know, God led me out of a 32-year pastorate at the age of 59. I got my next calling, which is here, at the age of 60. Don't matter how old you are, if God wants to do something with you, God can supernaturally do it. Of course, he had a lot of convincing of you guys to take somebody on like me. But I'm grateful. What I want us to understand is that God can supernaturally provide for us. He often does. Last week, as... Uh, Carol was driving home, and I didn't get permission to share this, but I'm going to share it anyways, I hope. Carol and Gary are, are driving home, and uh, their, their um, daughter's fiancé, they, they were watching him play baseball, and he hit his first home run in triple A ball, which is pretty exciting stuff. The only bad thing about it is it's a farm team for the Cleveland Indians, but you know. You can't get it all. Well, on the way home, very late, very dark, on Route 65 in Indiana, and any of us who have driven that know how dangerous that is. I've had to do funerals for people on that highway. They came upon something while they were traveling at speeds, and they couldn't even tell what it was. It was completely dark. And Carol said, 
She screamed, and Gary swerved the car. They missed the object, went into the guardrail, careened off of that, came back into the meridian, and then stopped safely there. Two men in a car had hit a deer just seconds before. No electricity was working on that car. There was no way to let anybody know that they were stopped in the road. And Carol said, God provided for us. She said, I have a well story to tell to others. And that's true. God is providing for us all the time because we are his people. We are called by God to believe and be his people. And so he will continue to provide for us. When I came here, a former missionary at this church pulled me aside to tell me, you know, I want you to know there's some serious spiritual warfare going on in that church. And he said, it appears that cancer follows the family of the pastor. And several of them or family members have died of cancer. And I said to him, okay. God called me here, and whatever is causing that has no authority in my life and no power in my life unless Jesus allows it. I don't need to be afraid. We prayed together and walked through the whole church facilities and all of that. But the point is, God provides for those he calls. My friends, he has called you to be part of his forever family, the church. God will provide what you need so that you can serve him and so that your witness can be meaningful. God will provide through the natural, but also through the supernatural. And when we learn through the supernatural, it is intended to grow our faith and grow our trust in God so that the next time God tells us something, we will obey. Not because God had to make sense out of it and convince you. That's one of the things my grandson has, has gotten good at all of a sudden. He used to just do whatever I told him. It was nice. He's almost 10. And he's become kind of like his mother. And he wants to argue with me. And the thing that makes it worse is he really is like his mother because at one point I called her Dr. Know-Nothing because she said, I know. Well, I know. What I'm telling you is right. I know. I said, really? Do you have a doctorate in that? Because I have a doctorate in something. So I get to be a doctor, but you, you're the doctor of knowing nothing. Now I'm trying to convince my grandson to trust. And the new strategy that I'm going to go for is, because it's easiest for me, and I said so. I hope I don't have to go to where my father went to when he said, son, about the time you think you're big enough, I just want to remind you, I carry a gun. 
You know, God in the Old Testament put stones of remembrance out, right? Ebenezer, so when people pass by it, they will remember what God did. God gives all these religious holidays and celebrations to his people. And why? So they will remember what God has done. God gives us communion. And why? So we will remember what he has done. God has written down the history of his people. And why? So we will remember. And we will trust. And we will obey. What can we learn from all of this? Well, there are just a couple of things that I want to point out as they start to wrap this up. First thing that we should know is that God is the sovereign Lord over all. God is Yahweh. And that name means something. It is the proper name of God that embodies all that God is. It describes God as being the absolute reality. Before God, nothing existed. There was no reality before him. And there is no reality outside of him. He is sovereign Lord over all. And what we see in chapter 17 is that Yahweh is Lord over the promised land and his people. Judah and Israel. We see that Yahweh is Lord over the wilderness and all of his creation. The brook at Cherie. We see that Yahweh is Lord even over Baal's territory, one of God's adversaries, which we could think of as the world. And we could think of as an extension of Satan. Yahweh's sovereign powers extend and stretch even farther. For he is Lord over Sheol and Lord over death. In Yahweh, we see a picture of the Messiah, who is the Alpha and the Omega. He has given the keys to life and death. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Can I hear an amen? The New Testament mirrors his lordship as he incarnates to live among his people, as he faces hardships and temptations and tests in the wilderness, as he faces his adversaries and the world, and yet even as he faces death and Sheol for us, so that he might call us and establish us as his people, the church. It is because he is sovereign Lord over all that we can trust Jesus above all else. It is not a novel idea. It is a very simple thought. But it is not easy. If it were, we wouldn't need so much reminding. But today, I remind you, He is Lord over all. Here's the second thing. Obedience to the calling of God, whatever that may be, as his people, serving within the church, serving in missions beyond the church, being called 
into marriage or called into singleness, called into parenthood or called to not be a parent, called to serve in different types of jobs, called to live in different places, whatever it may be, whatever the calling of God is for us, it comes from and through faith, trusting in Jesus that God will provide for us. It is like the old hymns say, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Elijah was a righteous man because he trusted the Lord above all else. And because he trusted, he was able to be obedient. James insists that Elijah was a man just like us. And just as Abraham had believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so we can conclude that Elijah believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness as well. If we believe, it will be counted as righteousness for us. In fact, it already is in our salvation, is it not? It is because we believe that Jesus died upon that cross as an atonement for sins so that we may be forgiven and brought into this eternal relationship with God. That we are not only washed clean by the blood of Jesus, but we are covered by his very righteousness. Not ours, but his. My friends, if you believe, then know that in your walk with God, God will provide everything that you need. He will neither forsake nor leave you. Do not give up on the ministry of reconciliation when it's hard, reaching other people and sharing with them God's love through Jesus. It'd be easier to say nothing, wouldn't it? It is, but don't give up because God can supernaturally change that. Don't give up on the church or give up on mission. And don't give up on unsaved family members, friends, or people that we meet. Never give up on trusting God or leaning into God's supernatural power. Humbly asking God to deliver you because he is able for his name's sake. All that God calls us to, God provides. So we need not fear. I want to close with the rest of Robert Matthews' story. Before his father hung up that day, he told his son that he was going to the World Trade Center to help out. His son was worried about him, but he knew his dad was not a man whose mind could be changed. He was especially concerned because his dad had never believed on Jesus. He was not saved. Before the father hung up, he said to Robert, take good care of my grandchild. Robert and his wife never heard back from his father again. For a little over two years, Robert grieved at the thought of his father's death and the state 
of his eternal existence in hell. Then one day a knock came at the door while Robert and his wife and his now young child were all there. When he opened the door, there was a man and a woman and a small child. And the man said, do you know Jake Matthews? Well, yes, Robert replied. He was my father. And the man stuck his hand out to grab Robert's hand and said, I want to shake the hand of the son of Jake Matthews. I never got the chance to shake his hand, but I'm honored to shake yours. He explained that his wife was working in the trade tower that day, and she was trapped under debris. It was Jake who had found her, and it was Jake who had freed her. And they had one more thing to say to him besides thanking him. Now the wife began to talk. And she said, as he worked frantically and feverishly to clear away the debris, that I was trapped under, we talked. And I was able to lead him to Christ. At this, Robert broke down. He was relieved and he was filled with joy. The couple told them that they had named their son after this man who had saved that woman and her unborn child after his father, Jacob Matthew. Why do I tell you this story? For two reasons. First, it's the true story of God who is able to provide supernaturally in a world that scoffs at the supernatural. We see that in the wife who was saved when the tire went flat. But it also reminds us that God is always in control, even when we think everything is out of control. Yahweh is sovereign Lord of all. Whatever God will call you to, God will provide. May I encourage you and implore you to lean into him. Let's pray. Almighty and Heavenly Father, we thank you now. We thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you that you not only call us to be part of your faithful people, but that you empower us as well and you provide all that we need. I pray that as individuals and as families and as a church, Lord, that we will step out in obedience based upon faith, that we will trust in you for you truly are the sovereign Lord over all things, worthy, of our trust and our obedience and our praise and our love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.